Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 30 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in as always and welcome to episode 30. Wow, we're really getting through the episodes now. It's great to have your support. There's a lot of you that have been here since the beginning, listen to every episode. Some of you come and go and just pick out the episodes that catch your eye. But I appreciate all of you and thank you for sharing the show around on Facebook, giving it a like, making some comments, letting me know what you love and maybe what you don't love so much about the show. I really appreciate it. This week I am still in Medellin in Colombia. Just had an amazing weekend away. We went about three or four hours out of the city, right up into the uh, the mountains and a farm for a few hours and drank coffee. It was just only a few days ago it had been on the tree and then we were drinking this amazing fresh espresso. It was uh, some of the best coffee I've ever tasted. We went horseback riding, stayed in this little village, had a really fun Saturday night in this tiny traditional Colombian village. It was so much fun. And it's just great being here. You know, I feel like uh, the last couple of weeks in Colombia have been so relaxing. I've spent a lot of time alone in isolation, a lot of time in meditation and journaling and just really trying to understand for myself how this next phase of my life is going to unfold. For me, it feels like a kind of a rebirthing. I had to spend some time grieving the loss of my old life. If you've gone through a big life change, you understand what I mean by that. But just really trying to go through the full emotional process of moving through into this this new life and figuring out what that means and what that means for me. And it's been incredible. Like The more I've acknowledged myself and the more I've kept tapping into that intuition and that authentic place within me and speaking my truth, the more and more amazing my life keeps becoming. It's sort of like what I do with my clients. I, you know, you hear the phrase, be yourself. It's one of the oldest phrases in personal development. It's a little bit overused. But that's really, for me, the core of what I help people to do because in this society, in this world, so often we can't be ourselves working with people around their sexuality, which is an amazing thing to help someone really come to terms with their own sexuality and speak about it maybe for the first time and heal some of the pains that they've been going through around their sexuality. Because if you're hiding your sexuality, it's a huge weight that you carry around on your back. It's like something that you think about all throughout the day. You're wondering, does anybody know? Has anybody noticed anything? So it takes this huge amount of energy to live this inauthentic life. So as I work with people coming out of the closet in all different ways i use that phrase not just for sexuality but for all different things a lot of professionals that are lawyers or investment bankers they have to really turn off their personality and be who they think they need to be in order to be successful in those roles and after time that takes its toll you start to lose who you are and forget who you are and successes become more and more empty so that's really what i'm passionate about at the moment for myself and for my clients is how can i help you remember who you are How can we start to help you be yourself? And once we've started to find out some of those authentic truths about you, then we can use that as a foundation to become an even better version of yourself, start doing the actual development work so that not only are you living an authentic life, but you know how to be successful from that authentic place, which is so important. So it's been such a privilege to watch my clients as they become more and more authentic and actually have that weight lifted off their shoulders and are able to live a more authentic life and what they can create out of that in terms of deepening their relationships, creating more profit and wealth in their business and 
the ultimate success, which is having more inner peace when you put your head on the pillow at the end of the night. One man that knows a lot about the question, who am I, is my guest today, David Taylor. David was born in the UK. And put yourself in his shoes as you start growing up and you notice the kids at school are calling you names about your ethnicity because you look Chinese. Yet when you go home, you realize your parents are white Europeans. And you start to question, maybe everything is not as it seems. The first half of the show, I just let David speak for about 30 minutes all about his story from start to finish because David is such an eloquent speaker and there's so much to be gleaned and you know you'll get lost just listening to his story as he takes you through his lifelong journey of that question who am I so without further ado please enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful David Taylor so I was born in Newcastle which is a little town at the north of England. I say little, it's kind of a, it's kind of the city in the, in the whole region. There's like one city and Newcastle's the place. Right. And, and that's an interesting question for me because if you asked me this question at different parts of my life, I would have given quite a different answer because mm. it's only in the last probably three years that I've really started to understand the truth of where I came from. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I was born... As I've recently discovered, I was born in a place called Hope Dean, which was a hospital which had two parts to it. One part of it was a private maternity hospital for kind of middle class women. And yet there was another part of it that was a place for fallen women and unmarried mothers. So I was born in a period where women who got pregnant outside of marriage, they were fallen women. And what I discovered was that my mother was a young girl. She was, she must have been 15 when she got pregnant and she was 16 years old when she had me. And these fallen women, as they call them, these unmarried mothers, they would go to this place and in exchange for working, they would be given the medical attention to have their babies. And by working, what I mean is they would be, they'd work as domestics, you know, changing beds, cleaning floors, cooking, cleaning toilets, bathrooms, all that sort of stuff. So basic cleaning work. And bear in mind, these were women who were six, seven, eight, nine months pregnant. So they'd probably be there for about three months before they gave birth. And I only discovered this quite recently. I was born there. And in many ways, I was kind of slightly luckier than some in that I got to spend Obviously, I didn't know, but it was great for my mother. But I got to spend a couple of weeks there before I was taken away and went to an orphanage. Um, the orphanage was run by Bernardo's, which is, I don't know how well it is known outside the UK, but it's kind of a big organization, charity that takes care of kids. And I then spent the next 11 months or so in an orphanage. And I know nothing about that part of my life. I know absolutely nothing about that part of my life other than I was in an orphanage. And it was at that point that I was picked out to be fostered and then adopted by the family that I grew up with. And it was kind of weird because I'm telling this story, and although I'm telling it in chronological order, it's actually exactly in reverse to what I know. So I only knew that relatively recently. And I, when I was young, and I remember growing up, and I do remember, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I kind of know now, you know, with hindsight, it was kind of easy to work out. I remember I must have been about five years old and I had to go to court for the adoption process. And I got interviewed by the court appointed people 
and they asked me things about, you know, did I clean my teeth and was I taken care of? And I vaguely remember my family preparing me for that and then going for this interview and then afterwards going out to have a special meal. And I didn't really understand the significance of it at the time, but with hindsight, it, that's what it was. And was that your first memory? It, it wasn't my first memory, but it was, it's kind of, a, it feels like an important memory. I, I do have this very vague memory. I must have been about two and a half years old. A couple of memories about playing with certain toys under my father's desk when he was working and things like that. And they're kind of vague. But this one sticks out. And I think it sticks out partly because this story about how I came to be, and it really at the heart of my identity about who I was and growing up, it's become something that's very conscious of for me. So I, that piece of the story kind of fell into place as a, as a kind of a milestone of who I was, was I was, I was adopted. But at the time, I didn't realize that. What I do remember quite vividly, I must have been about seven years old, maybe seven or eight years old. And I remember being on this long car journey and my parents were talking about my older brothers and sisters. I had an older brother and two older sisters. But talking about my older brothers and sisters and about how they went to hospital and then one of them was born on Christmas, on sorry, on Boxing Day and they'd gone to hospital on Christmas Day and things like that. But they didn't talk about me being born. And it was only then that I started to think that maybe I was adopted, even though I'd already done the court thing because I didn't understand it. I must have been kind of, let's say, about seven or eight years old, I started to realize that maybe I was different. And then at the same time, I went to a school in the north of England, at the very north end of Northumberland, for those who know England well, which, you know, 50 years ago was exclusively local people. And anybody who's seen my picture or has seen me online or whatever will know that I am not purely white. I'm part Oriental. And so... Here I am, this eight-year-old kid, the only non-white person within a sort of like a 30-mile, 40-mile radius in this provincial fishing town in the middle of nowhere. And I went to school, and I remember they started to call me names. And I really didn't get it because here I was growing up with a white family, looking out through these eyes, not realizing or seeing in any way that I was different. But they were seeing me differently. They were seeing me and they were calling me names like Chinky and all this sort of stuff and making stupid rhymes about me, about Kung Fu and stuff. And because I had no reference point or because I had no place to actually make this make sense in my life, it was really distressing for me. But I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't feel I could tell anybody because I didn't understand it. But within myself, it was really painful. And I remember it must, I don't know how long it went on for. It felt like it went on for months, but maybe it was weeks or even, you know, not even that long, but it went on for a period. And I remember going home and sitting at dinner and saying to my family, it just kind of came out that I just blurted all this stuff out, really emotional. And I didn't know what to do with it. But the response I got at the time was devastating. They all started to laugh. They all laughed and said, oh, don't worry about it. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And I guess what they were trying to do, I mean, with hindsight, they were doing what they thought was right, which was to make light of it and make it not a big, important thing. But for me, it was the thing. It was the defining thing in my life at that time. And I, was, I remember at the time being completely devastated. I remember leaving the table and going to my room, and I wouldn't let anybody talk to me. And at that time, I must have, like I say, I was probably about eight, eight years old, that I vowed I would never ask for help again. That I just found out on my own here. And it was like that. I remember growing up that I really was very closed 
to people helping me. I was incredibly averse to asking for help. I mean, I, I just couldn't. And this went on. I mean, I kind of learned to cope with that myself, I guess, dealing with this casual racism that, uh, that by which other people try to define me. But I remember leaving home at 18. And my mother said to me, she said, you know, the problem with you, David, is you never ask for anything. And so it was clearly true that whatever had happened when I was eight, I really hadn't asked for help or whatever it was right until I left home, that I became so aggressively independent. And in other ways, I kind of compensated for this challenge, I guess, of, of people seeing me in a certain way, that there were other areas where I was successful on my own terms. You know, I was quite smart. I could perform pretty well at school. So academically, I was quite smart. And I would use that intelligence like a weapon that I used success and being successful as a weapon rather than just accept it for its own sake. And that's how it was growing up for quite a long time. I mean, right through my 20s and 30s, I think that this was something that really defined how I showed up in life. It probably softened a little bit over the years, but it never really started to fundamentally change until about maybe 15 years ago. Uh, probably in my 40s. And these are the traits of just really identifying with your own intelligence and being a bit of an island, not asking for help. Yeah, not asking for help, being incredibly independent, would only do it my way. You know, in many ways, though, it was a very resourceful set of skills I created because in the organization where I worked, I would tend to be the one outside the mainstream, the one breaking the rules, the one just or ignoring the rules, which in many ways is quite annoying if you're in, if you're in, if you're following the rules, but actually it also stretches the bounds. It creates new opportunities. It creates different ways of doing things. I remember one of my other jobs in, I worked in IT, I worked in computing, doing programming. And one of my very first tasks, once I'd kind of been through the apprenticeship of learning how to do it, one of my first tasks was to do this reporting system. And every couple of days, this guy from the business would come through and say, I would like these reports, please. And what I noticed was they were all pretty much the same. They were full of the same pattern. They were pretty easy to codify. And I said, why has no one automated this? And they said, well, oh, it has to be authorized a certain way. And that's how we've always done it. Now, for me, that's a red rag to a bull because I don't follow rules. And so I went away and I codified it. I made this system up to do it automatically. And the next time they asked for it, I said, well, you could just do that and press that button. Wow. Never thought of doing that before. Well, yeah, that's because you've done it the way you've always done it. Now we're going to do it something different. And I actually created it so that the right person could authorize it and it would happen automatically. So having that kind of, I'm not going to follow the rules. I don't really care about the rules. I'm going to be quite independent and apply my intelligence in that way. That was quite resourceful sometimes. In relationships, it was pretty devastating. In, in solving problems, it was quite a useful resource to have available to me. But as I say, being so fiercely independent didn't really make for great relationships. And again, I'm looking at some of this with hindsight, looking at the first year of my life. On the one hand, you know, there is no doubt I had a desperate need for affection because, like I say, I don't really know much about my first year in life. I just know that I was taken away from my mother and I was in an orphanage. I can't imagine it was the most nurturing place especially, yeah. you know, orphanages 50 years ago, they just weren't. I mean, you know, there would be rows of babies, they'd be fed, they'd be cleaned. I'm sure that I was taken care of physically. I'd be very surprised if I was particularly nurtured emotionally. And so here I am in older life, 
probably with this, I'm guessing, and then there are traits of it, this need for this profound need for affection and connection. At the same time, this surface behavior of just this immense independence. And, you know, that kind of working against each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Competing commitments. And, you know, that's a, that's a set of commitments and behaviors that were at war with each other. And as I say, so in intimate relationships, personal relationships, it wasn't, probably wasn't a, a very healthy cocktail. So all those things really profoundly shaped my life up to a point. There are probably two points I can think of that have fundamentally shifted my life to where I am now. So what I've described so far, I guess, is the ingredients of what was created. And then what shifted it was in the mid-90s, I was working in a management consultancy. It was one of the big four management consultancy firms. And I had joined that after you know, 10, 12 years experience in industry. So I was a lateral hire. And actually, even though I was only in my 30s, pretty old for going into management consultancy. It's a game for people in, for really super high-flying, intelligent people in their mid-20s. That's when they get started. And, you know, they might have... That's a, pretty all-consuming too, isn't it? Absolutely. It's working all the time. It's very committed. And when I went into it, I really had this illusion that management consultancy was about having good ideas and some great relationships. Well, I guess it is once you've hit the top, but not really on the way there. It's really deeply committed hard work. You know, an immense demand in terms of quality and quality standards being applied to the work that was done. And whilst I thought I might have been quite smart, I was definitely not the smartest kid in the room. I was probably the least smartest kid in the room. So I'm suddenly surrounded by people who've got multiple degrees, they've lived in multiple countries, they've done multiple things. You know, I've got a pretty poor degree and I've done one thing. That was my life. So there I am, a lateral hire, because I'd done something that was quite useful in the market, and that was seen as being valuable. But I was... I was at sea and I came in and big four consulting, if you know it, it really is a meritocracy. You, know? you get paid directly in proportion to how well you perform. So you, you bring in some good business, you get paid well. You bring in some great business, you get paid really well. And in the first two years, I knew I wasn't doing that well because my pay did not change. I got a good, I got a good salary when I joined, but it didn't change for at least 18 months. So I knew that it wasn't going well, but I wasn't fired. So I was clearly in this bracket, which was a tricky one for management consultancy firm, that was not quite bad enough to fire, but not good enough to do anything with. And I remember getting a call saying, we'd like to send you on a training course. It's the first time we've done it. It's a new program. And we've specially selected some people to do this, and we'd like you to go on it. And there were 12 of us on this course, and we all got there, and we were all Again, all not all like me, but we were from different backgrounds, but we were all the same sort of age. We're all a similar sort of level in the organization. And we pretty quickly worked out we were all people who were not quite bad enough to fire and not good enough to do anything with. We all kind of worked that out pretty quickly. And what was cool about this thing was it, it was eye-opening for me. It was called the Peak Performance Program. And it was two days a month for six months. So you had two days of immersion, open your eyes to some new ideas. You'd go away for a month and practice. You'd come back the second month and reinforce and have some more ideas. And, and looking back now, I mean, it was really basic bread and butter stuff. It was some state management, mindset, NLP, you know, some really basic stuff, uh, power questions, all that sort of stuff, some language shifts, reframing. And yet it was all 101 personal development stuff. 
But at the time, when I hadn't come across that stuff at all before, it was completely eye-opening for me. And I didn't know this until afterwards. I met the guy that ran the course a couple of years later. And he said that when they were doing it, it was under intense scrutiny from the managing board at uh, this firm. And they followed our careers for 18 months before deciding what to do with this program. And what they said was, of the 12 people that went on this, six people resigned within one year because they'd found their life's vision somewhere else. And the six that remained, which included me, of the six that remained, on average, we doubled our salaries within 18 months. And he told me this, and I thought, I'd never thought of that. And I thought back, and actually, my salary had gone up by actually 150%. So I had more than doubled my salary in the following... Huge return on investment. For them. In the following months. So basically, you took 12 people, and then you ended up with six who were performing at a much higher level. I mean, that was amazing. And for me, it was, wow. it was intense because here I was. I had this new set of tools that gave me a completely different outlook on life. The funny thing was, though, because I'd learned it at a, in a business context, they were business tools for me. I didn't really apply them internally to me I applied them externally to business problems and client relationships, that sort of stuff. But it was a key moment for me because that was in the mid-90s. And what I discovered was that all the material was from Tony Robbins. And by the way, this is not going to be like a big advert for Tony, although I will talk a little about Tony a little bit. That I then took that into a, I went to a new job. I was a director and I had a big team of people working for me. I had them all go through the same training, the same program. And we're now into like 2003, 2004. And as part of that process of having everybody go through this program, there was a company that approached us to offer coaching services. Now, I wasn't really familiar with coaching, particularly at that time. I knew of it. I had a little bit of awareness, but it wasn't something front and center for me. But one thing they did do, the manager I had who was organizing all this for me, he came to me one day and he said, and this makes me laugh when I think back to it, he said, David, I'd love to be able to have some expenses covered off because I've been invited to this event, but it's at the weekend. I just want to make sure that you'll cover the expenses because it's a weekend. I said, of course, no problem. You know, what is it? He said, oh, I've got a ticket to go and see Tony Robbins. And I'm like, well, that's really cool. I did some stuff of his, you know, a few years ago, and that's why I'm doing all this now. I'd love to go and see Tony. I will sign your expenses if you get me a free ticket as well. <laughs> pretty you know, looking back it wasn't getting that ticket perhaps wasn't the most resourceful reason you know like where's my ticket because i'm the boss <laughs> but i got this ticket and i went along to see tony robbins i didn't even know tony robbins did live events and especially not in the uk and i went along pretty arrogant thinking wow you know i did some tony stuff it, i doubled my income and i was really successful and i bought a big house and a porsche and my life is fantastic you know i'm going to tune up those skills and i went along to this event and like six hours into it, I'm lying on the floor, sobbing my heart out because it wasn't about all the external stuff. It was about me. And I was one of those incredibly irritating evangelical people who went to a Tony event and said, it changed my life. And then tried to tell everybody else that it should change their lives too. Now, it does happen, but probably to about 1%, not the 99% who go along and have a great time and learn some skills. But there are, there will be a small number of people, maybe it's more than 1%, but there will be a small number of people who will have that fundamental life-changing shift because they're ready. 
And whether it was Tony or I was ready or a combination of all of the above and my history or whatever it was, I was launched out of this event into a fundamentally different life. And I remember going back into my corporate world. I was, I was a director in this company. And ironically, my very first meeting back in the office was a two-hour session with the HR director because they'd been they'd spent months doing personality assessments and 360 degrees and all the sort of stuff. And having done all of that, I was due to sit with the HR director to plan my year ahead. And it was things like, what coaching do you need? What development? What performance? All that sort of stuff. But they specifically had a budget for coaching, and it was to discuss how that might work. And I remember going back into the office after, that, after this weekend event and sitting with the HR director. And about 20 minutes in, she took the report she had in her hand, and she put it in the bin. She said, I have no idea what you've done, but the conversation we're having now has no relationship to this, what's written in this report. Wow. And we talked for about two hours about what I'd been doing and the impact it had, the insight that I had had on myself. And I actually said that it's very simple for me. Tony does this whole university thing. If the change that, that she sees in me is sustainable, that if I came back to her and met her after one month and she still saw the same changes, would they pay for the Romans University instead of having me use one of the corporate coaches? Because it's the same price. And they said, yeah, of course we would. And three weeks later, they said, yeah, we'd love to pay for that. Now, it was kind of a mixed blessing for them because whilst it did help me take my transformation further, what it did mean that a year later, it was quite obvious that my journey in life was not about being in this company as a director doing the things that I was doing there. It was very much in a very different direction. And I remember being on a train. I went, I went to London quite often. I was on a train coming out from London and I opened my corporate laptop and there was a whole bunch of emails in there. And I literally phoned my boss and said, I just want to let you know I'm not coming back. And this was in 2005. My wife was pregnant with our first child. I had no idea what I was going to do instead. I had no clients, no qualifications, particularly outside of my corporate experience. Nothing lined up at all other than this desire to do something different, do something which served people, to do something which served humanity in some way, whether it was charitable or coaching or something. And I got off the train and I went home and I told my wife, I hadn't even discussed it with her, that I said that this is what I'd done. And within 24 hours, I had hired an accountant, set up a company called The Freedom Factory and started the ball rolling to doing coaching and consulting. Now, when I talked about the successes I'd had before that, I'd said, and of course, I'd saved up lots of money and had lots of investments and things to fall back on. That would be a very sensible and sane story. But the truth is the exact opposite. We'd spent our money buying a big house and fast cars and doing all sorts of other stuff. We didn't have any money in the bank. We had no savings, really. And, and as I say, pregnant with our first child and still lots of financial liabilities. And so it had to work. I mean, I had no choice but to make it work. And, and whilst the coaching was slow to develop, I was getting hired to do some mindset workshops and performance workshops. And one company in particular that had been one of my big suppliers when I was in corporate life really saw the benefit of having me come in and remind their salespeople, their senior delivery people of what it was like to be on the client side, what do clients really want, how do you build client relationships. So I got to use a lot of the skills I'd learned, albeit still in the corporate environment. 
And I did that for quite a few years. And I think all of that so far is is kind of nice. I think the real, the really deeper shifts started probably about five years ago. Because I talked in my early life about being adopted, about how I grew up and the fact that I was Oriental. I remember telling my parents, even when they were, when I was an adult, talking to them about it. I was never really sure where I came from. But when I was probably in late 20s, early 30s, you know, they were reinforcing with me that my real parents were medical students. And they were at Newcastle University and that my mother was local and that my father was Malaysian. And he'd come over as a medical student and they fall in love, got pregnant, couldn't keep the baby, and that's why I was in the world. So I grew up. Well, I, when did you find about that? Like when did you actually when did your parents tell you the truth? Or like tell you that story at least? Well my From a young age? Well, they claim they did, but I have no memory of it. They claim that right. they told me that as a young child, but I have no memory of it. I don't recall really knowing that until my late twenties. I didn't really know that before then. So for the first time I had this story that I had in front of me or this belief that that's where I came from. And then my adopted parents died and my father died many years ago. My mother died more recently. And when they were cleaning out the house, there was an envelope of papers relating to me. Now, not really detailed adoption papers, but some, uh, some papers from before I was adopted. And it confirmed what I already knew anyway, what my real name was. But more crucially, I found out what my mother's name was. And it's incredible. And this is about six, seven years ago now. What's incredible is that with Google, if you want to find something out, it's pretty easy to find something out. And so armed with my mother's name, my date of birth, and my name, I started trawling Google and really quickly found out my birth certificate and my mother's name and her address and everything. And then started to look for this woman. Now, because I thought she was a doctor, I went looking for someone with a medical history or a, some sort of medical profession history with that name. And I found somebody, but it didn't quite add up. And then a, a little while later, I kind of got the pieces of the jigsaw and looked at them again and thought, well, actually, no, the person that I found doesn't fit, but actually it's, this is the real person. And what I found was this 16-year-old young woman was my mother. And she was from a place in Middlesbrough, which is famous. In the, in the UK, there's a, a thing called an ASBO, which is an antisocial behavior order, which is things that police give out to get people to behave because they are pretty badly behaved. And the place where my mother came from is famous in the UK because it has more ASBOs than anywhere else in the country. This is somewhere which is renowned for poverty and criminal behavior. It's a terrible place. I mean, it, it couldn't be more the opposite of where I thought I came from. You know, I, I thought my heritage was somebody who was middle class and a medical student, a doctor or something. And here he is. I'm faced with this truth, which is I come from a place which is one of the roughest areas of the UK. And I just couldn't relate to that at all. I immediately stopped looking. I just didn't want to know. I just didn't want to know. And four years ago, that sort of time scale. I did look again and I tracked down my mother again to where she is now and discovered she lived about 40 miles from where I live, you know, less than an hour's drive away. And, and I, only 16 years older than you. Yeah. And 
kind of pondered what to do about it and the agencies would say oh we'll help you but it takes like a year two years it's a long drawn out process equally i didn't didn't want to just show up at the doorstep because that would be for her it could be very challenging because i had no idea what her state of mind was so we got a, a friend of mine suzanne and who's a coach and also local so suzanne and i concocted this idea of how do we send a message to her that doesn't reveal all which gives her the opportunity to respond. But if her family don't know, or her children, or her grandchildren, whatever it is, or her husband, you know, that she has the opportunity to be all innocent about it, but it would give her enough clues. So we concocted this letter that was apparently from, what was that, genealogists, people who do family trees, that, you know, Suzanne was posing as someone who did family trees, who was doing some research on behalf of a family. And the letter was, we want to confirm that you are this person of this place who was born at this time and your father's name was X because I got all of that from the birth certificate. So it was really just to confirm your identity and would you like to participate in this analysis of the family tree? And it had a self-addressed, had a form in it and an envelope, an addressed envelope to send back to Suzanne. It was basically, yes, I'll participate. No, I'm not interested. And it also had Suzanne's phone number in. Now we thought, we thought my mother would get this and we might have to wait you know, a week or two weeks or three weeks for something to come back. What we didn't plan on was my mother would literally get this the next morning after it was posted. And then as soon as she opened the letter, would call Suzanne on the phone. And that's what happened. She immediately called wow. Suzanne. And when she called, her first response was, I know this is about my son. And I want you to tell him that I had to close off that part of my life. And can you just tell him that I can't make any connection? It's tough. And Suzanne didn't know how to respond. She didn't. She wasn't prepared for Brenda calling. And so they spoke for about 10 minutes and Brenda asked some questions about me. And then they finished the call. Half an hour later, she called back again. And she said, can I write to David? Can I send him a message? And would you pass it on to him for me? And she wrote me a letter. And I think the thing that shocked me more than anything else was that she thought I might hate her because she gave me up. Mm -hmm. And I wrote back to her and I said, you know, the thing that made me reach out more than anything else was having become a father of children. I couldn't imagine not knowing what had happened to my child. I wrote back and said, I just want to let you know that I love you and things have turned out pretty well. It took a while, but things have turned out pretty well. And it kind of grew from there. She wrote back to me again and then told me about my father. And so my father turned out, she, as I say, she lived in Middlesbrough and she was working in a shop. And in the street where she lived, close by, there was a Chinese restaurant. And my father was a waiter who had come over from Hong Kong to work in this restaurant who was a lot older than her, I'm guessing in his 30s, who was married, who had three children already, but had kind of fallen in love with Brenda in the UK and they got pregnant. Oh, she, Brenda got pregnant. And that's wow. who my father was. But she didn't know his name. She had a name that they used, a British name that they used with him, but she didn't know his real name. And as soon as his boss found out that Brenda was pregnant, he was sent back to Hong Kong. So she had no means of contacting him. I have no idea who he is. I can only imagine that he's already dead because he would be you know, 90 years old at least now, if not older. But she told me all this, and she told me that she'd had two children, one, which is my brother, 
uh, half-brother, is only 11 months younger than me. So she got pregnant almost straight away afterwards. And I remember reading about this at the time that, you know, girls or young women who'd had their babies taken away, they were seen as being, they were called, I don't forget what the word is, but they would say they were, you know, they had loose morals. And the evidence was they'd get pregnant again so quickly afterwards. I think nowadays you'd look at that and say they were so devastatingly wounded emotionally that they would want to fill up again. They'd want to heal that wound. And, and actually that's why they got pregnant. Not because, not because they had terrible morals or whatever, the different, a different lens of, of ages and generations. So all that unfolded three or four years ago. And yet there's kind of another dimension to it that I bring into that, which is for many years, I always thought that what I was really looking for was that connection with my mother. And what I discovered, and I discovered it not in that moment of connecting with Brenda. What I discovered was it was in that moment of discovering who my father was. And then this abrupt realization that he was dead or almost certainly dead, but he is uh, dead. That was what was devastating to me. That was the thing, that was the wound, that was the connection that I realized was completely and fundamentally missing from me. Hmm. And actually, I, I know that you worked with Rich Litvin, and it was actually Rich coached me a little bit on this in the end of 2013. And you know, anybody who's listened to some of, some of the recordings he puts out there, there is a session of him coaching me where I am literally grief-stricken. And... You know, he suggested creating some ceremony, some way of making that connection and saying farewell. And I remember driving to the beach. And if you know the north of England, a beach in the winter, it's snowing and cold and wild. And I remember doing that and going deliberately when the tide was out and creating this gift to celebrate my father and then just letting it wash away in the tide. It was a fundamental way for me to connect with someone whose name I don't even know. So when you ask me, I know I've given you a very long answer, but when you ask me, you know, who am I and where have I come from? I think that's, those have been some key moments of my journey. But my whole journey, is, I think, has been very simple, which has been, who the hell am I? You know, I grew up with a family to then discover that they weren't really my family. I grew up with an identity, which I then discovered wasn't my identity. I then created a new identity linked to who my real parents might have been to only discover that was a story. And it's only in very recent years that I've started to really discover who I am and also discover the moments where that's been important to me and what's been important to me about that. Such an intense journey. And how important has it been, that question, who am I? Now that you've gone through it and you've discovered as close as you can get to the truth, have you got what you wanted? I never really thought about it as getting what I want, which is why I'm pausing with that question. What you want in terms of the, the, the question, who am I? Like looking for that answer. Yeah. Have you got the answer that you wanted? Or is it the, the journey to finding it that's been so? You know, as I think I said in the bio that I sent to you that who am I? It's the hardest question to answer. It's, it's a question that we don't ask very often, not in a real way of expecting an answer. My relationship with that question. I think, first of all, I didn't realize I was asking that question for so many years. It's only with hindsight that I've realized that so much of my behavior and my needs and my emotional state were driven by not knowing who I was or having that gap or having that, that wound that, that I couldn't even relate to. 
I think what's happened, particularly in the last five years, which has been much more of an inner journey. I mean, I, I talked about that moment with Tony Robbins that, that was transformational. And, and I worked with Tony for 10 years. And, you know, to me, amazing work. And yet there's a part of it which is superficial. Part of it's on the surface, outside-in type work. Whereas the work I've been doing with myself now in the last five years has been much more inside-out, much deeper work. And I think what has happened is I've become much more comfortable not necessarily knowing exactly who I am, but I've become much more comfortable that there are many parts of that unknown that I know who my father was, even though I don't know his name, I don't know where he is, I don't really, I'm assuming he's dead, but I don't really know that. But the fact that I'm not searching anymore brings a degree of comfort. The fact that I realized that the wound I was trying to heal, you know, the filling up where I didn't know how to fill up was actually that relationship with my father. These are things that allow me to, comfortable is the wrong word, but allow me to find peace, I think, with that question. So who am I is a hard question anyway, but also to say, am I happy with it? I don't know, because I think I'm still in it. I'm still in that journey of discovery, that journey of allowing myself to be seen. And, I, and I'll perhaps come back to that, but I think that relates to my film work, that I, that I realize, you know, so much of my life is about being seen. So much of my life was actually about avoiding being seen. I was afraid to be seen. Did you feel a sense of loneliness? Yes. Throughout all of all of your childhood and through all of that, was that a big part of it? There was a part of me, especially when I was younger, probably before I left home, where I had this place of melancholy, this, which wasn't quite loneliness because I enjoyed the being alone. I enjoyed not having to relate to others. I enjoyed that independence, but there was a melancholy in it. There was a sadness in it, but I kind of, in some ways, enjoyed that. So I wouldn't call it loneliness. And yet I did spend a lot of time alone. And, you know, again, it does remind me of one of the things I do remember my mother saying to me, which is, as well as the problem being that I didn't ask for help, my other problem was I enjoyed spending time alone. You know, I, I used to go fishing and my mother would say, you only go fishing so you can be alone. Well, probably true, actually. And yet, I have a profound connection with nature, in particular water. Uh, I do feel, grounded is the wrong word because it's water's obviously wet, but I do feel particularly centered and grounded around water. And maybe that's because I did go fishing as a child and that was a great place of connection for me. Or it just, that's just my, my spirit loves being around water. I know that I was in the, uh, the hills in California. In uh, Southern California, we were hiking and it was desert really. And the higher we got, the less comfortable I was. I just didn't like it. And yet I, I love being in the Scottish Highlands, you know, the, the hills of a similar size. But when in the Scottish Highlands, there's always a burn or a river or a lock or it's raining or something, it's not dry. And so I, I realized that it was taking me further and further away from water. Uh, and that took me further and further away from my center, I guess. But yeah, was I lonely? I, not in that sense, but I loved being alone. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting distinction. See, so your biological father, like that's, you know, I'm trying to get my head around that because the having that, that open-ended question of is he alive, is he not, and you said you've kind of got some closure and through that moment on the beach, but how did you kind of come to close that chapter or that, you know, it's, it's a question that will never be answered. How did you come to terms with that? Well, I think at the moment it became real for me 
was actually when Rich asked me a question. He said, have I ever grieved for my father? Because my adoptive father already died many years ago, over 20 years ago. And, but he asked me this question, have I ever grieved for my father? And actually, it, it never occurred to me until that moment that my real birth father was almost certainly dead. Mm. It was in that moment that he died. Even though it's not someone I ever knew, it was a devastating blow. And I was hollowed out. I was absolutely hollowed out. And it was painful. And my pain was so raw. You know, with hindsight, it was an interesting place to be because I was at an event in LA with 50 people. And then for the next 10 days, I was at another event in Palm Springs with 2,000 people. You know, two personal development events back to back. And the pain was so raw. People could see it everywhere. They could feel it. It was tangible. And they wanted to make it okay for me. You know, so many people came to me and said, oh, I can really help you or I can help you with this. And actually, I didn't want any of that. What I wanted, I wanted it to be sharp. I wanted the edge of it to complete the hollowing out of all that stuff I'd carried for years that I wanted it to complete its job with me before I let it go. I didn't want to make it okay. I wanted it to be there. And How long did it take? Probably that was razor sharp raw, probably for about 10 days. And it was about another week after that that I then came home and went to the beach on my own and made this little symbol, which is dad in Chinese. It wasn't father, it was dad as far as I can tell, colloquial dad in Chinese. And I got a white orchid and a white lily. And, and I just made this tiny little shrine at the low tide mark and then let the tide take it away. And I think that was it. I think that was the closure. That was the moment where I accepted what was. And actually, I do remember coming home because this place is about three hours from where I live. And whilst you won't know this, and probably most people listening to this won't know this, on the journey, there's a statue called the Angel of the North. And it's huge. It's on the top of this hill and it overlooks the motorway. And it's absolutely huge. And it's an angel with its wings outstretched. And I've driven past that so many times. Some people hate it. Some people love it. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. I just see immense power in it. And whilst I am absolutely not a religious person, I did grow up in a family that was religious. I knew it was time to go and visit the angel. And I remember pulling off the motorway and it was starting to get dark. It was dusk and it was the clouds. The sky was like really messed up with snow clouds and it was really windy and they were blowing about and it was, there was snow flurries coming down. And so I drove up to the angel and I'd say it's the top of a hill and there was no one there. It was just incredible. And I walked to the base of the angel and it, I could just feel this immense power. And I just had this, this sense of the angel was waiting for me to come. Well, wow. I feel it now. Yeah. And I think that was when the you, time. Yeah. Sorry. When you look at all this, like when you go through all this journey and all the process that you've been through and like you've gone to the depths of yourself to get the answers for one of a better word phrase, do you see a reason for all of it? What I've discovered in all of this is if I go back to that time when I was eight, I allowed my life to be totally and utterly shaped by other people's opinion of me. 
And it wasn't even an opinion. It was a projected weakness that they put on me. So they saw me as chinky or slant-eyed or kung fu or whatever, Bruce Lee or whatever it was. I mean, I spent most of my teenage years with half the people in my life. They called me Bruce, and they, didn't, they never even knew or asked my real name. Of course, nowadays, I mean, Bruce Lee, how cool is that? But when you're 14, <laughs> it's not that cool. It was so reductive and diminutive. And I created all sorts of reactions to that. So I would dress ridiculously because it would allow, it would divert from that. They would see me in some different way. So my behavior, the way I operated, I dressed, the car I drove, they were all distractions from that fear of how they would project onto me. How I look at it now is that's where the work is. You know, because what I realize is the fundamental and immense power of being seen and how most people in small ways and sometimes big ways like my life, they avoid being seen for who they truly are, that they are shaped. I made a video recently about giving a fuck about what other people think of you. And when people give way too many fucks about what people, other people think of them, they become diminished. They become unseen and hidden. And so what, what's really been important to me now, and you know, I think you've seen some of my films, you might want to share some of my films, is allowing people to be truly seen. And you know, the work I do now is, and it's so, it seems so ridiculously simple, and yet in some, somehow it works. You know, I sit with someone with a camera in silence. And that sounds like, well, anybody could do that and it would be so easy and something would happen. And yet what I've discovered is that, that for many people, when you put a camera in front of them, it's reductive. You know, the ego flips in, the fear of getting it wrong, the masks arise, the ego kicks in, I've got to make myself look good and all that sort of stuff. All that stuff kicks in and it's usually reductive. And yet what I found is that in the right context, in the right container, which I call stillness, that I can sit with someone with a camera and it becomes this amazing microscope, this amazing lens into their true authentic being. And, and what unfolds that I find that I sit in complete silence is this, this kind of initial piece, which is who, you know, saying things that you might think someone wants to hear or telling a story or whatever. And then what happens is a deeper thing will emerge where they'll slow down and they'll stop saying the things that they want to say or should say. And then some words start to arrive that they've never said before. And I think you had Tom on your program recently on your podcast and I filmed with Tom and he had this immense realization about something that happened to him when he was 13. He'd never connected to it before. And it just suddenly came to him in this silence and this deep stillness with the camera, these moments of deep presence. And it's transformational. The, the transformation, the liberation that I've seen simply by sitting with someone with a camera for 40, 50, 60 minutes and allowing them to be, it, it's immense. And I think every part of my journey from being born to this point has been preparing me to be present with someone, to see who they are in that stillness. 
And so that's the reason that I've chosen to give this this life, this journey. Yeah, it's beautiful. Your videos are amazing. You film them in black and white, right? Yeah, I film very simple, natural light. There's no artificial light. I, I, I uh, can only film in daylight. So if it's dark, it doesn't work. And uh, I usually just sit somewhere next to a window with a black backdrop. Uh, and we film a very simple presentation. And it really allows you to see the person. You know, there's no distraction. There's nothing to take you away from that rawness, that nakedness, the intimacy that you get from just them and their emotions revealing themselves on screen. Um, and it's funny because, you know, what I'll end up with when I film with somebody, we'll film probably for, I don't know, somewhere between 40 minutes and 90 minutes. Oh, that would be a long session, 90 minutes. And, and yet there'll be flashes of this true presence. It might be two or three minutes. It might be five minutes or 10 minutes. So what I do is the storytelling, you know, I've done a lot of storytelling on this call, for example, but a lot, a lot of the storytelling I will strip out and I'll simply leave the moments where they're truly present. And that's the power of it. That's, that's when, and, and it's not just that moment, you know, for some people, that is the most difficult thing is just allowing themselves to be seen. And, and actually, sometimes it's seeing themselves for the first time. It's when I make that into a film and I show it to them, that is sometimes when the transformation happens. And sometimes if they choose to share it publicly, it's knowing that others will see them is the is the catalyst for transformation uh, and it, so to so really i'm interested in this concept of like yeah. you said you know and allowing someone to be seen take me into that a little bit deeper because i think i understand it conceptually but i want to know a little bit more what that means well i think it's it's about this as i say so i hope you don't mind swearing on your podcast but it's about no, absolutely the, not. you know it's like this, it's like the video i made recently it's about you know about giving way too many fucks what happens is when we give a fuck about what other people think of us, we edit ourselves, we hold back, we don't say what we want to say, that we are limited in some way, we reduce ourselves so that the world can cope with us. Being truly witnessed is to let all that go, is just to say what comes to mind. And if I think of one of my, one of my early films with Anna, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called Never Again. We sat down with the camera and she had been violently abused by her partner five years earlier. She was left in hospital with life-threatening injuries. She still carries those injuries today. And we sat with the camera and she spoke about that moment as if she was actually there. And she spoke about it in that way for the first time since it happened. It's so intense. And yet, for five years, she'd been holding back. She hadn't allowed that to be seen. And to allow that to be captured, and then, and then actually to go further, to allow that to be shared publicly, is it takes immense courage. And I think that's what I mean by being seen. It, sometimes it's just to say something out loud that you're so afraid of saying out loud. 
and then it actually to be really seen is to say it out loud to say the thing you fear most to say it out loud and then to allow other people to see it and 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 for anna and she's very happy to, for me to talk about this because she talks about herself publicly we've talked about it together we've shared about it on facebook together but for anna this journey was even more challenging because anna is a therapist who specializes in ptsd and so for her client to see her in such intense pain to see her on film to be so broken the risk in that is immense because they'll say well how can she do therapy how can she help me and and yet for others they will say i know she can help me because she has experienced my pain so you know there's lots of different frames on this of course and yet to have the courage to allow yourself to be truly seen knowing it could damage your career or change the change the trajectory of your life i think that's what it means to be truly seen that's what it means to be witnessed interesting that that's going to be a powerful experience for you a healing experience well it's interesting i don't know if that's what people think i i mean for anna it was i'm not sure she knew that before it started i'm not sure i knew that before it started i i and and for you me you just know that there's some power in being seen yeah you know, there's some, I, I, you, you found this unique um way of allowing someone to express themselves and be seen and whatever comes of it is incredibly powerful. You know, I, whatever will be, will be. And, and yet I do fundamentally believe that being seen is our, is at our core, our natural state. And actually the pain of being seen is actually what, what we've held back from. It's how we've held ourselves back from, from the world. It's how we've given way too many fucks. And we've conditioned ourselves into those patterns of not being seen. And so what's the version of this for somebody listening? The version of this like, that they can apply for themselves. I think it's to notice those moments when you hold back because you are worried about what someone else might say, because you give a fuck about what, how someone else might judge you by what you say to notice that and then say it anyway. It's about revealing your truth anyway even though others might judge you it's about crying profoundly because of a pain that you've had and allowing others to see that and to not care what they might think of you it's that's what being seen is it starts very simply by noticing where you're not being seen and that's really the first bit of the journey is saying oh i've held myself back there or, or thinking back to a moment where i wish i'd said that well why didn't you say that what was holding you back? How about you said that next time? So even the, the start of it is just noticing. And then little by little, allowing those bits of you to be out, allowing those bits of you to be seen. You know, it, it, this weekend, I, uh, I was in Leeds. And it was uh, the Pride March, which uh, I don't know if you have outside the UK. I think, I think it is, but it's a, you know, it's yeah. a huge... You know, it's the LBGTQ community get together and celebrate their sexuality, who they are. And sexuality is, again, it's reductive. It's not just about sexuality, but it's to, it's, to, it's to celebrate who they are and to be whole with who they are. And yet it's not that many years ago when those same walks, those same 
people showing up in the streets would have created friction, would have created riots, would have created violence, because you know there was a part of society gave a lot too many fucks about someone else's sexuality, and and I think that probably holds true even today that people will still hold back. They'll still hold back from speaking about who they really are because they're afraid of the recriminations of the repercussions of the consequences of that. And, and I'm not saying speak out to put yourself in danger, but I'm saying to notice it is a start, to notice where you might be holding back. Um, that's what comes to my mind. And I just use that as an example because that's something I saw yesterday, how amazing it is that people can celebrate something that 20 years ago would have been hidden, only 20 years ago. Well, I love the idea. I'm gay. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I love the idea, the concept of coming out, you know, um, spreading that outside of the gay community. Because um, for me, like I've, the, the way I've seen it as a blessing is that in order for me to live an authentic life, I knew what I had to do at a young age. Yeah. I knew that I had to come out to, uh, if I wanted to live fully authentically, which was something that was really uh, um, a really important value to me and still is. And so I, for me, I love the idea and I've been spreading this message lately is, is come out, you know, what, what, where are you not coming out? Um, you know, where it's something you believe or whether it's, you know, a desire or a dream you want to be that you're worried is going to be laughed at or a, a great goal or a mission or a purpose that's there for you. Yeah. Um, come out. I love that idea of coming out. <laughs> And so, you know, by the way, I realize that I've talked an awful lot and I haven't asked you anything and I didn't actually think of, of, of something there, which was, you know, given what I've described about uh, this process of, of being seen, where have you noticed yourself holding yourself back? Where have you noticed perhaps a story you have or a thought or a feeling that you don't allow out? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this is something, you know, I've been right in this for the last 12 months, probably this speaking my truth is not giving a fuck what other people think and for me there's a part of me you know i'm fundamentally a nice guy i have the nice guy syndrome so there's there's that whole need to want to keep my world safe and comfortable and not create awkward situations and not alienate people and try and be everybody's friend that's kind of the context that my life's come out of so for me i really had to i had to come to terms with losing people or putting my truth ahead of friendship or pleasing people or playing nice, which that was my biggest challenge. And of course, 95% of the time is not true. You know, you don't lose anybody from speaking your truth, but that was the step I had to get past personally when I started, started going through this. And the, the, the examples that come up, so being gay is always a challenge. I thought um, when I came out at 22, then that was it. But I didn't realize that every time you met a new person, you had to come out. <laughs> in a way um so that, that's kind of an ongoing thing and in my more powerful moments i will just speak the truth about being gay or talk about boyfriends in a, an interaction with someone new and in my weaker moments i'll just let it pass even even though i know they're assuming that i'm straight or I have a girlfriend so yeah that's that's when i notice i'm very 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 aware of of that one and how depending on what state i'm in i'll play small or not not speak my truth around that um and weirdly, it's I know it's similar in the UK, but you know in New Zealand and Australia we have this tall poppy syndrome, um, oh, yeah. where in terms of personal development, and as I've gone into the personal development world, it's kind of there's a weird stigma about personal development. I don't know how else to say it. People think it's American or it's cheesy or it's you know 
Yeah. Why are you trying to do all that? So for me, as I've moved from being a pilot and moved into the coaching world, it's speaking my truth about what I believe in terms of personal development and what's possible for people's lives and what's, you know, not, not holding back in terms of what I believe in that sphere. So those, those, would be, those are two powerful examples that are alive for me. Yeah. And I think it's each person, each individual, I think there are countless things that when we allow ourselves out, things start to emerge. And what I love about the film work is, you know, and hopefully, you know, I'll get to film you one day, Nathan, that you've talked about the things you're conscious of. Where it becomes really exciting is when the things emerge that you're not conscious of. And that's, mm. that's, that's where it gets really exciting because this stuff comes up uh, and I don't know where it comes from. I, I filmed someone recently who is, they work in TV. And so I'd imagine that they would be very familiar with being on camera. They found sitting on the camera in silence one of the most difficult experiences of their life. It was just immensely challenging. And, and so you just don't know. I've had other people who uh, don't want to be on film, don't want to be in front of a camera, have just been immensely present and natural because they've allowed themselves to be seen. And surprised me, I think surprised themselves. The only thing I know is by sitting with someone and allowing them to be in a space which is not judged, that's deeply present, that's in silence, that something happens. And yet there's no real prediction about what that might be. And it, it, it unfolds in that moment. I think this, that was my idea with this podcast in a way was to create a forum of, you know, where we sat down longer form. Everybody kept telling me it's too long. You need to make it 30 minutes. And I said, no, I don't give a shit how long it is. I want to have a, an open, vulnerable, yeah. unedited conversation with a bunch of men and just see where it goes. And you notice, like I, I noticed with you, you get into a flow, right? You forget you're even on a podcast. You're just <laughs> talking, you're sharing and, yeah. and things. Um, you go into a deeper place, right? And that's what I think is the beauty about what you do and, and you know, similarly what I'm trying to do with this podcast is getting to that point where it's just natural and vulnerable. And you said it beautifully when you said when you start to allow that truth to emerge, all sorts of things come up, all sorts of things can emerge from that place that don't emerge if you just close everything off. Yeah. If people want to experience this or if they just want to go and watch your videos because I know everybody's going to be going, man, I need to see some of these, these videos now. <laughs> What's the easiest easiest way? I mean, I'll put a couple of links to some of sure. my favorites in the show notes, but how do people learn more about it? So so there's two places you can look at my stuff. The um, you, you know, I work as a coach and a filmmaker. That's that's what I do. And so on my my website, which is pretty much brings everything together, the filming, the, there's films on there, there's some, some conversation about films. Uh, that's extraordinary.coach. So extraordinary.coach. Pretty cool website. Pretty cool website. I thought that was pretty cool. And, Very cool. Um, the, the other place you can find my, just my film work is on Vimeo. Uh, I think people basically Vimeo is like posh YouTube. Um, it's, it's where we, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say it's where real filmmakers hang out. Uh, so vi right. vi vimeo.com slash uncontained. And I, I just love this idea. And, and that's when I first started doing the film work. That's what I felt it was. It was about being uncontained. What if 
back to your comment about being out. What if you were allowed out? And it's not about, you know, kind of the metaphor of being gay and coming out. This is about being human and coming out. You know, so uncontained was about being allowed out. What if you allowed yourself to truly speak? So vimeo.com slash uncontained. And there's a whole bunch of films in there, a whole variety of different people, including some people that have been on your podcast. Beautiful. Um, yeah, we'll put all those links in the show notes. The, the last question, Thank you. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm really excited to hear your version of this, but it, it's to do with the dark side. We ask it in every, every episode. And the dark side for men has these different meanings. It's, it's effectively the part of you that is in the dark still that, I don't know, you have to watch or you're not sure of or that can flare up at different times that, you know, whether you are aware of your dark side, whether you are scared of it, whether you've learned how to embrace it. Just interested in what, what is the dark side for you? The, I, live, I live in this, I think, this fascinating paradox. Because uh, I was thinking about this. I, I, by the way, I didn't realize this was going to be a question you asked me until about 20 minutes before the call. Um, Perfect. But I, was, uh, <laughs> I, I, but I was thinking about it before the call. Um, I live in this kind of weird paradox. I think one of the things I said to you when we first connected was a few years ago, I'd been, you know, Rich spoke about me at one of his events as being a model of vulnerability. And, you know, a couple of times I have been coached by Rich in front of a room and, you know, I've gone into a very deep place, a dark place and, and be totally vulnerable with it. And I also was filmed. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's called Father and Son. I was filmed talking about uh, my son, my son being born. And and again, that was deeply wounded place for me uh, that, that, that that revealed. And, and yeah, I thought, what was my dark side? It, my dark side is also my strength. I think my dark side is being utterly afraid of being seen. And yet, that's where I work. I work in that space of vulnerability, of going as deep and as freely as I can to wherever it takes me, openly to do that. And yet, I still live in fear of being seen. How do you embrace that fear? How do you embrace that part of you? I think it's, I think it's by embracing vulnerability. I think... That the healing is every time I go deep with vulnerability and I'm present with that and just allow that. I don't notice that I'm being seen. I notice that I am being me. I notice that I'm allowing myself out. And yet there are other times, and, I, and as I say, I go back to this point where, you know, as an eight-year-old, when kids start to become self-aware, of course, is that kind of age. I remember being bullied and called names and stuff when I was eight, nine, ten years old. There are times when I, as a grown man, will walk down the street and there'll be eight, nine, ten-year-old kids. And I'll feel that fear rise up in me of being seen. And yet, I can stand in front of a room of hundreds of people and go to the depths of my grief and fully express it and feel totally present. So that's the paradox. That's the paradox of my dark side is my greatest strength. I hadn't really thought about that until until this, just before this call. Yeah, I love it. We've got a couple of minutes left. I want to just 
go back to where we started and just finish on a question. Who are you? I'm so many things. I, I'd like to start with being human. I'm a humanist. I'm a connector. I, a lover, a father, a maker of films, a coach, a navigator, someone in a journey of discovery into myself. Well, I, I appreciate that sounds really cliched, but that comes up, just comes to my mind. I, there's something I, I'm not quite sure how to put it into words, but it feels like I am someone who enjoys more and more being present, that enjoys more and more giving less fucks and allowing myself to be me. And I think I talked recently about, you know, just be me. That's the great thing. You know, people say that all the time in personal development, just be you. Fuck me, it's hard just being you because you get tangled up in everybody else's shit. And so who am I? I'm someone stripping away other people's perceptions of me so I can allow myself to be revealed. All of those things. David Taylor, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing and being open and vulnerable as always. Nathan, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real gift and I look forward to connecting more in the future. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, David. Thank you. Well, yeah, the folks, my conversation with the beautiful, eloquent David Taylor. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I loved the depth that David took us into uh, around his story of his life. Uh, you can find out more about David at his website, extraordinary.coach. Probably the coolest website I've heard so far on the show. Or you can see some of those beautiful black and white videos, which I really encourage you to do. They're so deep and so moving. Uh, the videos that David's created. And you can see those at vimeo.com slash uncontained. That's it, folks. Thanks again. I hope you have an amazing week. I'll be back next week from Columbia with my next guest and episode 31 of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.